Today's show is brought to you by our sponsor, Select International Tours. To find out more about the power of pilgrimage, visit selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. St. Gabriel Media presents The Brooke Taylor Show. Encounter, adventure, evangelize. And now your host, Brooke Taylor. Welcome to the show. And right out of the gate, I want to thank my wonderful friends at St. Ambrose Church in Brunswick, Ohio, for welcoming me in to their parish to speak at their annual Advent Tea. So beautiful to gather in person. It was a full house. I talked about letting go, conquering doubt and fear through the little way of trust. Just a really sweet time of retreat. So thank you again to Father Bob Steck and every Everyone who made the day so special again at St. Ambrose Church. And I hope today's show is going to be a little bit of a retreat because we're going to get lost in the world of Shakespeare. And if you're not immediately intrigued by that, stay tuned because that is my hope and our goal today on the show to cover you in the truth, beauty, and goodness of Shakespeare's writing, why he's still so important today, and how he can become more accessible to all of us. A good starting point. So over the summer, I took a road trip out out west with my son Grant, and it was such a special mother-son experience. It gave us many days on the road just driving. And you know how that is. You have to pass the time, you're doing different things, and there's a beauty in that. But one of the things that we did was listen to a lecture series about Shakespeare. And although he was slightly bored out of his mind, for me, it was one of those occasions that will be imprinted in my memory because it was so compelling and engaging. And so that That really lit a blaze for the bard in my heart. And from the day we got home, I started to read everything I could get my hands on about Shakespeare. Considering this was actually only a few months ago, I really am only reaching the tip of the iceberg at this point. So as we enter into today's show, I just want to offer that, that I would never pretend to be an expert. And if you aren't either, well, then we're in this together. You are in good company. And I hope that you will find today's show as fascinating as I do. As Michelangelo used stone as his tools, Monet used paints, Shakespeare used words. And for me, once I was able to get past the idea that it was such high culture beyond my understanding, which is a myth that I hope we can debunk today, I am absolutely delighted to welcome whom I would consider a contemporary Catholic authority on William Shakespeare, and that is Joseph Pierce. He is a native of England. Joseph Pierce is the internationally acclaimed author of many books, including The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man, Myth, and C.S. Lewis, the Catholic Church, also books about Oscar Wilde, Chesterton, Solzhenitsyn, and Dante, and more. Mr. Pierce has hosted two 13-part series about Shakespeare on EWTN, so I would highly recommend that as a great starting point and lectured at literary events in the U.S., Canada, Britain, Europe, Africa, South America. On my bucket list of guests, he's here and I'm excited. Welcome to the show, Joseph Pierce. It's a joy to be with you. <laughs> you know, I have to share, keeping in the road trip theme, that my husband and I recently took a trip to South Carolina, and on the way home, we listened to your episode of EWTN's The Journey Home with Marcus Grodi, because you didn't just spring from the womb a literary expert. You were actually on a much different path. What a powerful life story. So can we kind of start there? Would you give us a brief peek into your younger years? Yes, certainly. Uh, I would 
perhaps refer your viewers to my book, uh, Race with the Devil, My Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love, which was published by Tan Books. So if they want to get the full story, then that would be where they would find it. But uh, it, in, a, in a nutshell, so to speak, that I was raised effectively as an agnostic back in my native England. At the age of 15, I got very heavily involved in radical white supremacist politics and became the leader of uh, the youth movement of, of, a, of a major white supremacist organization in England. And for editing a magazine, I was sentenced to prison twice. And it was largely through the reading of G.K. Chesterton in the first instance, and then through Chesterton being introduced to Hilaire Belloc and C.S. Lewis, that I was led away from that those years of darkness and hatred into the fullness of the light of Christ and his uh, mystical body, the church. So I was received into the church in 1989, when even I was young. <laughs> uh, I was 28 and I haven't looked back since and I've, I've certainly been trying to repair some of the damage I did as an angry young man by um, by sharing the love of Christ with others. And I highly recommend everyone watch the full Journey Home episode because there's so much more to your story. And as you mentioned, the best source, really, your book. And now today you have built such a wide acumen when it comes to literature, particularly British writers, but again, Dante, Solzhenitsyn all over. And so today we're going to focus on Shakespeare, as I mentioned. So I'm curious, I just naturally think that would be an outflow if you studied Chesterton and Balak, but how did you come to be interested in the Bard? Well, in actual fact, really, my love of Shakespeare, or at least my reverence for him, dates my introduction to Chesterton. My father, as I was raised effectively as an agnostic, but my father was a great admirer of Shakespeare and also very very much a patriotic Englishman. And, and, and for my father, Shakespeare was the greatest Englishman who ever lived. And he could quote swathes of, of Shakespeare's you know, speeches from the plays and what have you. So I sort of was raised with Shakespeare at my father's knee. And also, you know, the, I talk, talk about this in my conversion story. The motto of my, my high school in, in, in London was, this above all to thine own self be true. This says William Shakespeare. But of course, you know, what I didn't realise because that's a relativist statement, right? This above all to thine own self be true, that above all else, as long as you're true to yourself, that's all that matters. I mean, it's, it's fundamentally relativistic. But what I didn't realize is that as a child and what my school in its ignorance presumably didn't understand is those words were not said by Shakespeare. They were written by him, but they were said by Polonius, who's a character in Hamlet, who is an obnoxious character. He He's running a spy network. He lives by lies. So someone who lives by lies and deceit as, a, as running a, a network of spies in the service of a murderous king, talk about this above all to thine own self be true, is itself a lie and, and a hypocritical lie at, at that. So I, I adopted that as my motto. And then when I came to realize, of course, that Polonius is not Shakespeare, that took me the whole deeper, uh, I need to understand Shakespeare more. I need to get delve and dive deeper into his work so I'm I'm more conversant with him and that's what I've been doing over the years. I have to think that's very common for a lot of us. We have an introduction through Romeo and Juliet, but we have to know him really, as you say, before we know his work. And in The Quest for Shakespeare, a book that you wrote, brilliant, you write, he knows us even if we don't know him. He shows us to ourselves even if he conceals himself while he does so. And so to truly know his work, it's necessary to know him 
him. And something I think that's very notable for us, you assert, as do many scholars now, that he was Catholic. And I know you spend the bulk of the quest for Shakespeare kind of litigating that case. Let's set the stage of his world first, and that will kind of bring us into the the Catholic aspect, the world he inhabited. So let's go into that set. Elizabethan England, of course, Queen Elizabeth, the daughter of Henry VIII, the sister of Mary, who was Catholic, who preceded her, and she then is a great persecutor of the faith. And for Catholics, this was such a deadly era, the the time in which Shakespeare lived. This was when there were priest holes, clandestine masses, and if you were discovered to be Catholic, you were hung, drawn, and quartered. And you have, again, this entire book dedicated to the premise that he was indeed himself Catholic, but obviously couldn't be overtly Catholic. So Chesterton, Newman, Bullock, they believed Shakespeare to be Catholic as well. Yes, and absolutely. Basically, there are two ways of of, of proving and showing and proving Shakespeare's Catholicism. One is the biographical evidence, the evidence that we know of his life. And there's actually more of that than people realize. As I discovered myself when I started making a conscious scholarly approach to, to, to his life. But the other way of proving it is the, the textual evidence from the plays and 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 the and the poems, you know, because that they are also uh, palpitate Catholicism. So I've written three books basically on Shakespeare: the Quest for Shakespeare, the subtitle of which is the Bard of Avon and the Church of Rome. That presents the biographical evidence, the historical evidence from what we know about Shakespeare and his times, and then through Shakespeare's eyes, seeing the Catholic presence in the plays, looks at the evidence to be found in the plays. And I wrote a book just on Romeo and Juliet called Shakespeare on Love, seeing the Catholic presence in Romeo and Juliet. To go back to your question, Quest for Shakespeare looks at the biographical historical evidence. You are correct. In Shakespeare's time, he lived during during the reign of two English monarchs, uh, two British monarchs, the second was Scottish, technically, Elizabeth I and James I. Under both reigns, Catholics were persecuted. It was punished by death to be a priest. It was punishable by death to hide a priest from the authorities, and it was it was punishable by imprisonment or exile or heavy fines to refuse to attend the religious services of the state religion, the state church, which was established by Henry VIII. So conscientious Catholics were called recusants, those who refused to attend. They basically were either at various times put in prison, forced into exile, or, or fined extremely heavily so that over the period of the generations, Catholic, the Catholics in England were impoverished by the, this combination of laws. Overall, there was 150 years from the 1530s until the 1680s when Catholics were put to death for their faith. And a further 150 years after that, from the 1680s to 1829, which is the date of Catholic emancipation, when Catholics were persecuted legally without actually being put to death. They had all sorts of very limited rights. So Shakespeare lived in the midst of this. So the backdrop of his plays is this dark, effectively secularist tyranny in which he was living as a Catholic, a very anti-Catholic secularist culture. So in that sense, he's extremely relevant because, you know, we find ourselves today living in a a secularist, very anti-Catholic culture. So his, his plays speak to us as powerfully as ever. That segues right into my next question. I was going to ask about his relevance. Seven years after he died, Ben Johnson, who was a contemporary, sometimes a rival playwright, he said of Shakespeare, he was not of an age, but for all 
time. And we see that in the Western world, his work, his legacy has largely gone unrivaled for hundreds of years. One critic called his plays a thing of divine worth. So it seems unanimous, but Based on school curriculum these days, anyway, unless it's a classical education, he isn't being taught in schools. Again, outside maybe of a high school Romeo and Juliet or an AP English class. But do you think the work of Shakespeare is still as important today? It's hard to read. It's tough to just open up a play and understand it. So do you think that that's been a crutch for us, a difficulty, or his relevance has diminished in any way? Certainly not the, la- the, the, the latter. Um, the, the problem is, as, as G.K. Chesterton said right back, way back in the 1920s, the coming peril is standardization by a low standard. That basically education has been dumbed down to such a degree now that people can't even read basic English, let alone English, which is a bit more challenging. And it's, it's a damning indictment of the modern education system, which is inspired in part by desire to cancel the past anyway. You know, these people want to basically have a tabula rasa, a clean slate into which they, they impose their own ideological agendas. So the past, of course, is full of ideas that they find unpalatable. As far as possible, modern education cancels the past. So Shakespeare is a, is a victim of this cancel culture and also a victim of this dumbing down, which is a consequence of the cancel culture. That's why classical education, why homeschooling, why this, these, these new classical schools that are being springing up all over the country, thanks be to God, are so important because we have to pass on to the next generation the glories of the past. And one of the most glorious things of the past are the works of William Shakespeare. It's so interesting because I would think he would be immune to that because he's so elusive in, in how people try to pin him down. The, the secularists would say, well, Macbeth is nihilistic, but all the world is a stage signifying nothing but, but sound and fury and how people of different uh, faith traditions and, and understandings and no tradition at all claim Shakespeare. We know, and you point out again, an incredible airtight argument for t- truth, beauty, and goodness, and even in the way that he looks at the commandments and virtues, that, that he was Catholic. But is it because it points back to an objective truth? Oh, absolutely. In all of Shakespeare's plays, he the virtuous characters, the heroes, are in the service of objectivity, in the service of uh, objective reality, of what philosophers were called realism, the realism of the scholastic philosophers. That's all the good people, all the good characters are, are, are serving that reality. The evil characters serve false philosophies. And it's a perfect example here that perhaps the one thing that's worse than Shakespeare neglect is Shakespeare abuse. When Shakespeare is taught, he's usually mistaught. One example would be that quote from Macbeth you've given, that life is cow top and idiot, idiot signifying nothing. That that's nihilistic. But who's saying it? Macbeth is saying it. When's he saying it? Shortly, effectively, before he, he effectively commits suicide. I mean, he knows he's going to die. He is a man in despair. He's also a, a serial killer. He's a psychopath. Yes, he's a nihilist. But what Shakespeare shows us is that, you know, that the sort of philosophy of nihilism leads you to where Macbeth ends up. In madness. Absolute madness. As again, Chesterton says, speaking of Macbeth, the character, that when, when, you try to, when, when you allow pride to take over your life, ambition, you don't break out of yourself, you break further in. Every door becomes a door to a smaller room because all that's left in the end is your own shriveled, golemized ego. And you're not no longer engaging with the glory of the reality that's out there. You only have the darkness of what's within. And that's the lesson that Macbeth teaches us. But see, the key thing is we talked about Polonius. 
No, Shakespeare didn't say that. Polonius said it. Shakespeare didn't say that life is a Tau Tolbin idiot signifying nothing. Macbeth said it. And that this is uh, you know, very, very important for us to understand what Shakespeare is saying through the words of characters, through the words of others. What is a good starting point for us? Okay, let me ask you this, a two-part question. First part, how is Shakespeare best appreciated via the stage or the page? Well, unfortunately, Shakespeare abuse is so rampant that most stage productions of, of, of Shakespeare's plays are full of agendas that, that are anathema to what Shakespeare's actually saying. So unless you know something about the uh, the, the company that, that's, that's staging, producing the play, stay well away from dramatization because you're likely to be offended with all sorts of modern 21st century, century agendas, which are, is, is what I said, Shakespeare abuse. So the safest thing is to go to the text of the plays and the way to do that I would suggest two practical ways for Catholics. One, to, to read them in relation to the books I've written. And secondly, also, the seven of Shakespeare's greatest plays have been published in the Ignatius Critical Edition series. That gives the whole text of the play, but it also gives an introduction to the play and also a series of essays about the play, all written from a, from a tradition-oriented primarily Christian, primarily Catholic understanding of Shakespeare. And there's even study guides for some of those if you really want it, you know, you can really go, go deeper. So I would say up to a point, most of us need to, shall we say, have our hand held when we're led into Shakespeare. And certainly many of us are, are, are scared, intimidated, because we think it's, it's too difficult for us. And Shakespeare isn't. Shakespeare really is like learning to swim. That you have to make the effort, first of all, to dive in. You, perhaps you don't want to dive in the deep end if you don't, you, you can't swim. That's why I'm suggesting maybe taking these aids with you, right, to help you float. But, but basically, once you start getting in the habit of reading Shakespeare, he comes alive very quickly. He's, he's not as difficult as people think he is. And the, the more you read him, the easier he becomes. So it's just a question of making that initial effort and overcoming that initial trepidation and, and fear. Second part of the question, can you cherry pick a play that would merit study for a first timer? Where would you begin? Well, again, as regards age appropriate, a good place for people to, uh, if they're students, uh, children, youths, I should say, uh, Shakespeare's not for children, but for, for teenagers, I would say Romeo and Juliet is a good place to start. But you have to, I would absolutely emphasize that you should get the Ignatius critical edition of the play. You should also, I would suggest, get Shakespeare on Love, seeing the Catholic presence of Romeo and Juliet, my own book, to, add, as I say, to, to guide you through it. Because basically it's a warning about allowing erotic passion to overpower reason. Basically, that, that Romeo and Juliet meet their doom because they will not listen to the words of reason, which are given, amongst other things, by, by the, the Franciscan friar, Friar Lawrence, in, in the play. And also the parents, the older generation, also allow passion, not, er not erotic passion, but violent passion, hatred of, of each other to, again, to completely and utterly overcloud and overcome their reason. And, and, you know, as in, in so much, Shakespeare is a great proponent of reality. He's a realist. And, and reality means you have, to you have to subject your own passions, your own heart, your own will to objectivity to reason, to that which is, 
which is not the same as that which you want it to be. One helpful tool that I've noticed with Shakespeare and that I heard is the famous kind of block to love there. You know, and you can see that in two ways in a tragedy or in the comedy. You've got the block to love in Romeo and Juliet. They can't be together. You've got the block to love in A Midsummer Night's Dream and that there are two ways it could go either at the altar or the tomb. The tomb obviously is the tragedy and that helped me going in to kind of know because there are some similar outlines that duplicate that again like you said you need to kind of float first and learn and then you recognize these things and it and it comes alive it was interesting you were talking about not for children because i felt like a bad parent i was my son who's 10 was listening with me to a lecture about lady macbeth and oh my that was i wasn't prepared and he was so engaged and enwrapped in it but what's hard for me is i really like to see the cinematic version after reading and i think a lot of people do you know it can't hold a candle in many cases but there is a famous scene with Lady Macbeth that it's the out damn spot scene, 1979 Dame Judi Dench, where she's trying to wipe the blood off her hands that will never come out. And it begins with a, an internal moan and then raises up to a screech that lasts for 27 seconds, which is like a lifetime on the stage. So I had to go to YouTube and find that. And just to see, she's really remarkable as a Shakespearean actress. It's like, how could I have gone this long in my life? And I never knew about this this whole world. And, and many of the colleges are even taking away the humanities departments, to, much to our peril. But I think it's so important. And there must be some cinematic versions that you would recommend. I know when it comes to Hamlet, there have been many. And I saw the Kenneth Branagh version, which I thought was good. Of course, I think, what's the what's the gold standard one? That It's even older than that. Laurence Olivier. Laurence Olivier is, is, is relatively safe. But, you know, even in uh, his time, the 1940s, the ideas of deconstruction, the nihilistic elements of literary criticism were still very much in the ascendant. You know, I don't trust his renditions of the, of the, of the tragedies. I mean, the safest would be Solaris Olivier's Henry V, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. I mean, they, they are ones that I would recommend without reservation. But most other film adaptations I, I'm concerned about to one degree or another. Again, in, in the Ignatius Critical Editions, in several of the Shakespeare editions, there's actually an essay by James Bemis, who's a film critic, where he actually looks, he actually looks and appraises the various film adaptations of that particular play. So if people do get Ignatius critical editions of those plays, they can actually go to James Bemis's essay, and he's very he's very trustworthy. So I would trust him as a guide to which of the plays uh, would be the best to to watch. Do you have a favorite? Well, I like Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. I, I like the fact that the Catholicism is not smothered, that it comes to the surface, particularly some very, very important moments. The acting is superb. The cinematography is superb. Very happy to watch that over and over again. Most, I say most other dramatizations of Shakespeare, I turn my back on. Well, that's helpful because I was going to ask you about a new version out on Christmas Day with Denzel Washington and it's Macbeth. So it's obviously modernized. I only saw the trailer. It's very brief right now. I'm sure they'll release more as time goes on. And it seems to me like a bizarre film for Christmas Day. <laughs> I don't understand that quite. I thought of you right away when I saw the trailer. I thought, I wonder what you think. So I'm, I'm tempted to think that Macbeth is the perfect film for the Grinch and for and for Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas Day. <laughs> I mean, the point is, I, I can only think, maybe overthinking it possibly, 
that there, there's an element out there now that just they despise the spirit of Christmas because ultimately it's the spirit of the Christ child. And but they, Denzel Washington is a Christian. That's what I, my husband said. I don't know. And then he said, well, Denzel, you know, he's a he's a man of faith. But yeah, I agree. I, I doubt if Denzel Washington had anything to do with the scheduling of it. Well, that's true. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, and you pointed out off the air. And it's true. And I see and I just get I keep getting frustrated. I have high hopes. They put out the new Anne of Green Gables. I thought, oh, this will be good. It's horrible. Hollywood can ruin the best things these days. It's just been really bleak in terms of what's been put forth out of Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we need to be willing to shake off our addiction to uh, mass media. We need, to, we need to be willing to shake the dust from our sandals and move on. There's so much goodness, truth and beauty out there, whether it's just spending some time to look at the sunrise uh, or whether it's spending some time to read Shakespeare. You know, that we don't have to be glued to a screen. Many of us are glued to the screen, whether we like it or not, during our working day, because that's the culture in which we live. But I would suggest that for much of the time in, in, in our own time, most of many of us now expect to be working 24 7 because we we're connected but you know when, when we actually claim time for ourselves i think we should actually extricate ourselves from technology i mean i'm a techno minimalist you know we have books we have shakespeare's plays we have conversation with each other we have conviviality i would say one thing though for those that do want to you know, this may make me sound like a, like a hypocrite <laughs> I, i'm getting together with some friends at the moment to watch uh, this is something i do recommend without any reservation the early 1980s british tv adaptation of evening wars novel Brideshead Revisited, which is about 11 hours and uh, got great Shakespearean actors in it. So Sir John Gilgood, Sir Laurence Olivier plays Lord Marshmain, Jeremy Irons, you know, Anthony Andrews, Diana Quick, who's uh, Claire Bloom, who plays Lady Marshmain. Brilliant actors and actresses, and, and they kept very close to the, to, to, to the, to the story. It's a profoundly Catholic novel. Now, I mean, for, for your puritanical, for those, for those of you, for those of your viewers that have a, a more of a Puritan streak, there'll be, there'll be parts of it that, 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 that they might wince at because is this a story of miserable sinners who come to the faith through making mistakes? So, you know, we, we, we have to, if you like, follow the Mary Magdalene figures to the dark places in order to experience the conversion. So uh, I would warn people that if they're particularly sensitive to that, then maybe they should think twice. Even looking at what we've lost when I read Shakespeare and the way that he writes, I printed out over the summer, I was aspiring to this goal of memorizing to be or not to be. I just had never really studied. And I thought, I really love Hamlet. And I think that he maybe is mis represented. I think Hamlet's also really powerful for the month of November as we observe all souls. And and so often as I read Shakespeare, I think it's the unlikely people, the gravedigger or bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream that have the wisdom. So there's a point where Hamlet, you know, it's to be or not to be. And then towards the end, he says, there's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. And then in the end, he says, let be. So to be or not to be, and then let be. And there's a peace that comes. We've lost so much. We don't speak this way anymore. And and I think even for Shakespeare, he was extraordinary. I know there are estimates of his vocabulary that it was upwards of anywhere from 40 to 70,000 words, which is twice the number of the average American 
college graduate. So that gives you an indication. But you just think, have we, you know, you look at the Elizabethan England and think that that was the dark ages, but such brilliance came from that. And now we have so much and there's so much darkness. I mean, any insight on that? I just feel like we need to reclaim. There needs to be a renaissance, a revival. I'm, I'm glad that, you, that, that, no, that, that we uh, have, have reached the discussion of Hamlet, which is probably my favorite of Shakespeare's plays. Again, in my book, through Shakespeare's eyes, there's several chapters on Hamlet. But the, and, and those those quotes you, you use were wonderful. The symmetry between to be or not to be and then let be. I mean, this is the way Shakespeare works. There's a divine symmetry in his plays. But at the very end, this is the whole point. That a tragedy does not necessarily have an unhappy ending. Hamlet does not have an unhappy ending. It actually ends almost right near the end, of almost the final words of the play, said by Horatio, his loyal friend when he says, may flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Now, these are actually words from the banned Catholic prayers after the Requiem Mass. So basically, Shakespeare gives Hamlet a Requiem Mass at the end. He's going to heaven. That's not an unhappy ending. I th see, this is the thing. I paralleled artwork. There are so many keys and symbols and hidden things. And the more you look, the deeper it is. Similarly to our church. And you think, I could spend, I remember through my reversion, and I've said this often, the rest of my life just discovering and swimming in the beauty, truth, and goodness, which leads us ultimately to the source, which is our Lord, because it's so rich and, and we'll never be able to unpack it all. But with Hamlet, you know, just the idea of purgatory, I, I watched the Kenneth Branagh version and for me, it kind of brought to life. And I think for a lot of people who are going to begin this Shakespeare journey, and that's why I really appreciate these tools, I couldn't understand it when I first started watching it. And so I had to go back and I have the books and I was reading them. And so that's why I think what you're offering here through Shakespeare's eyes and Hamlet is so good because because of even talking about imagery in Hamlet that goes on about appearance versus reality. There's a wonderful, you said about you know that, that which is versus that which seems. There's a wonderful line that Hamlet says to his mother. He says, seems, madam, I know not seems, it is. I love that. It's in, because she's saying at that point, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you over your father's death, right? I wanted to ask in terms of an introduction, really kind of a little bit touched on King Henry V, the so speech. Yes, well, the St. Crispin's Day speech is, uh, so that was one of those speeches I mentioned at the beginning of the interview uh, that my father, quote, knew the whole of it by heart. So I grew up with, with hearing my father declaiming that speech, the St. Crispin's Day speech, uh, immediately before the Battle of Agincourt. And again, you know, that, that a priest friend of mine sent me a, a selection of links of this speech being given. So, so Laurence Olivier, Kenneth Branagh, and then a, been a performance at the Globe Theatre. Then, then there was a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old, a three-year-old on his third birthday reciting St. Philip's Day. It's so cute because obviously he, some of the words he didn't understand what they meant. So he was sort of just... What? Yeah, but it was just so beautiful. It was beautiful. Incredible. So ch because when there's truth, it just sears right to the bullseye of the heart. And it also shows why we talk about Shakespeare being difficult. This is a three-year-old. Now, of course, he doesn't understand everything in the speech. Uh, and then the five-year-old understands a bit more. But nonetheless, you know, it does show that we can actually engage with Shakespeare from a young age and get from it what we can get from it that's appropriate to our age and then grow into him. You now, as we grow into life, Shakespeare is as large as life or larger than life. So we can grow into him as we grow up. And that's the whole point. And Shakespeare helps us grow up because we live in a culture where people grow old without growing up and Shakespeare enables us to grow up as we grow older.
Boy, is that a beautiful sentiment. I, I had to open to the speech, which is right before battle. It's right before, as you mentioned, and it's really worth looking up. I did receive a listener question. If you don't mind, I was just going to ask because Shakespeare is only one area of your expertise. C.S. Lewis also came back in the net when I cast an, uh, uh, questions to my audience. Craft Mom 22 she said... Joseph, what C.S. Lewis book would you recommend for today's times? Okay. Uh, first of all, I'm a literature person, so I'm always going to choose fiction over his works of nonfiction. Obviously, works such as Mere Christianity, as regards his nonfictional works, remain very powerful as expositions of, of uh, essentially Christian orthodoxy. But I, I would say, I would answer the question, that hideous strength, which is the third of the books in the so-called Ransom Trilogy. So it's a work of adult fiction, but it's basically set in a secularist, scientific culture where experts are basically running the government, experts in very commas, and ultimately, as, as Lewis shows, that these people are ultimately serving the demonic. There's the, the small minority, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, to go back to Henry V. There's that sense of we few, we happy few, or, of the small group of people who resist this monstrous, secular, relativistic, scientistic tyranny. So that is something which I think certainly palpitates with, with, uh, with relevance today. So that hideous strength would be the, what I would suggest. Thank you. I really recommend your books. I wanted this episode to come out this time of year. We're in Advent. We are anticipating the coming. That's what Advent means, the Feast of the Nativity. And one of the things that I talk a lot about through Truth, Beauty, Goodness is building a library for our children. We don't know what the future will hold. We can't just rely that we can pull up our smartphones and find some information, but to be able to have a collection of heirloom books. I'm writing this down, The, the Hideous Strength. I love all of your books. I have not read them all, but the way that you write is so poetic and beautiful. You have such a gift. I know you also are a lover of Hilaire Bullock and Chesterton. Could you just maybe cherry pick a few that you would recommend? Well, that's a great question. I, as regards Chesterton, I, I, and this is not just trying to sell my own books here, I do think that my biography of Chesterton, Wisdom and Innocence, The Life of G.K. Chesterton, is a very good introduction to the man and his works, because I quote from the works copiously as I'm telling the story of his life as they're published. For Hilaire Bullock, I would recommend his poetry is wonderful but i would recommend the path to rome his book the path to rome which is glorious uh, as a work of literature my favorite the chronicles of narnia books uh, is the last battle if people want to buy it by that and of course the line in which wardrobe has a, 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 a guest appearance by father christmas so that's obviously also a, a, a good book for the christmas season charles dickens is a christmas carol i mean people haven't read that they need to some wonderful illustrated editions of it but you want the full text the full dickensian text and not don't be shortchanged it's a very short i mean you can read it in two hours of course your own library where you write about tolkien and you write about oscar wilde and you have biographies as well as unpacking some of the themes what's the best way for us to get more acquainted with your work well the, the simplest way would be to check out my own website so that's jpierce.co not .com .co jpierce.co if they go there then that will lead them to other places I also enjoy your blog, too. So you periodically will write and have insightful articles. What are you working on now? Are you? Can you say, are you working on a new book or any projects? 
Yeah, well, I, ha I have a history of Catholic England coming out in February. That's already written and at the publisher. That has about eight or nine chapters on this this period we've been discussing, this this period of anti-Catholic terror. And I'm currently actually working on a history of Christendom, the 20 centuries of, of, of Christendom. Actually, very apropos your own podcast. What I'm looking at is that the, the three dimensions of history, the good, the bad and the beautiful. In other words, the saints, the good, the bad, the wicked and the beautiful, the great works of art, culture that speak forth the goodness, truth and beauty of God in every generation. So one chapter for each of the 20 centuries, that's that's what I'm working on now. I'm only on about the fifth century, I've got a long way to go, but uh, that's what I'm currently working on. No wonder you don't watch any TV. <laughs> Clearly, who has time? I mean, that is extra. Plus, you kind of, you lecture as well. You're on, and for those that are entering into or are already veteran homeschoolers, you have on the Homeschool Connection, a place that you teach and instruct. I had seen, have you have a course on Dante, and many others. So that's a way that students can connect with you as well. I've taught probably at this point, maybe 15 or so different courses, including quite a few on Shakespeare for Homeschool Connections. So people want to check out the Homeschool Connections website and um, they can see what I teach for them. Thank you. We are so grateful for your fiat, your testimony, your work, your mind, and we just will continue to pray for your work and all that's to come. Thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to my guests on today's show, Joseph Pierce, and I will link up the website as well as the book title specifically that he called out. Hopefully I'll be able to cover them all and we'll link that up on the show notes. But for the general Joseph Pierce Library, you can find all of that again on his website. A big thank you to my producer, Mark Humming, for his dynamic gills and quick work. Mark is a producer extraordinaire. So for any audio video needs you may have, check him out at cominghomestudio.com. This show is brought to you by Select Tours International. To find out more about going on pilgrimage with me and our spiritual director, Brother John Michael Paul, just visit selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. May the light of the world, Emmanuel, God with us, surround you with his presence this Advent season. God bless you. Until next time, friends, peace and love.